Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Tongsha, the project of Oni Rutta Das, who's based in London. I first got to know Oni Rutta through some mutual acquaintances. Uh, he then released an incredible EP called Aberrant on my label Hard Return. He played at the Hard Return label night at Cafe Otto. And since then, he's gone on to pursue this combination of mutant dancehall motifs and various forms of obliteration through pedals. Uh, It's wonderful to see him live because he really embodies this kind of paradox where repetition is very much at the centre. You're often hearing the same rhythm for upward of 20 minutes. Yet everything is constantly changing. His hands are forever moving over dials and pedals, tweaking certain parameters, bringing things to the foreground, disintegrating others. Everything is always on this volatile precipice at the edge of rhythmic destruction. And it feels very connected to Oniruta's political foundation as an anarchist. This sense that, you know, to have a steadfast commitment to resistance, you constantly need to be moving, uh, recalibrating, uh, reframing what constitutes resistance upon the changing landscape of politics and oppression. I absolutely adore his music. I love speaking to Oniruta as well. Uh, I love having a back and forth about his music, where it's progressing, what influences he's pulling in, his equipment. Uh, So to be able to do that for upward of an hour and talk about these three important records was a huge buzz. Um, He picked three good ones too. So I hope you enjoy this episode and if you're enjoying the podcast generally, you can support it. Either one-off or monthly, you can make a uh, donation of any amount you please over at coffee ko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening there'll be a link in the show notes thank you very much for your support there and for however your support manifests is always welcome thank you so much okay that's enough introduction this is tongsha on crucial listening Oniruta, welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi, hi Jack. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, thank you. So we're here to talk about your three important albums. Before we get to those, I want to talk about your music. Uh, and we have like an intermittent ongoing dialogue about your music. Obviously you released uh, a record on uh, my label Hard Return earlier this year. And it's been really interesting to hear about your trajectory with your sound it feels like you're heading for something with your sound i mean you said something in a message to me recently which was the 
and this was maybe a, about a month back, but that you've got to the level of destruction and the dissolving of the beats that you always imagined. And it sounded mm-hmm. like your hard return release was like a stepping stone to that. So mm-hmm. I wondered if you could tell me about where you're at with your sound now and what that progression has kind of looked like over the past few months. Like, where are you headed with it? It's It's kind of similar to what you just described it's just um whereby i mean i'm finding it a lot easier whenever i'm engaged in an improvisation to get the textures that i desire and with with the the combination of um main effects that I'm using, which is an acid box overdrive kind of filter, and also um, an Otto bit bit crusher. These are really kind of the characteristic sounds of present day uh, Hongshou. And mm. it's, it's basically the combination of those sounds with with the clean signal that are giving me um these textures but also the other thing that differentiates dongshou music is the rhythms that i use and i kind of set myself what i thought was an impossible kind of task which is to try and come up with rhythms i've not heard Mm without veering from the 4-4 rhythmic framework in terms of um, what is there on my sequencer. So Mm. it's a digitact. The sequencer is integral to the machine, the sampler sequencer, and it's um, what we call 64-step sequencer, uh, meaning you can have up, up to four bars and each one is divisible by 16, hence the 64. Mm. I'm, I'm seldom using more than two bars. So I'm not doing the obvious thing for somebody who wants to create mad rhythms like, oh, let's do 15, 16 time or, <laughs> right, yeah. or 7, 16 or anything like that. They are all strictly in 4-4. Four, four. It's quite easy for me to change those patterns um, but the placement of the key points of the rhythms, the kicks and the hats, mainly, that's what gives what I do some strange feels. Mm. Um, you still have this recurring clave-type pattern, mm. which is a five-stroke pattern, which I've applied to hi-hats, but it originates from... The go-go bell and it would be it's quite an important punctuation which has then carried on into latin music but it kept coming up that kind of motif in what i was doing and it seemed to fit with where i was placing the kicks mm. and the snare drums disappeared from their conventional place in western backbeat orientated music so i do have the snare sound but it's in unusual places and i have all my motif um all the elements 
in my tracks doing some kind of a call and response routine. So they're seldom hitting the same one of those 16 steps at the same time. Mm. And so that's the rhythmic template. And then when you're applying these extreme effects, quite destructive, you get the illusion of the music. So not only because rhythmically it sounds off key, this rhythm, it's like, what is that rhythm? <laughs> you then apply these effects. And then I've also got delay in there, a couple of delays. And um, they're giving this illusion that this, this music is just completely imploding. Mm -hmm. And um, that is what I was looking for. Now, to answer, to go back to your question, it's more the case I'm kind of fine-tuning. Fine I'm, I'm now trying to pull things back a bit and sweeten the sound a bit because the, the bit crusher coming in and the way I use it, not in a subtle way, gives this very harsh digital texture that's sometimes overriding the entire mix. Mm. You know, it's on the point of being ugly, okay? And um, which is, I like that. It's nice, but I want to see how I can sweeten it slightly. So I'm investigating ways of filtering that top end or something I want to do very soon is to try to record to analog tape, um, mm. like a reel-to-reel -reel machine and see how that impacts upon this digital sound. How mm -hmm. does that temper the sound? How does it blunt it in a way that is pleasing? Um, and and the compression and all of that. So that's kind of where I'm at. And obviously you play live a whole bunch as well. And you talk about the fact that through improvising, you've started to approach this new phase of your sound like how mm. the sound behaves within improv mm. um seems to you know give you a lot of information as to you know where your sound is is at so i mean when we talk about you know your journey playing live this year what does that look like like you're you, you did a little run of shows recently with um some mutual friends of ours yeah. non-crew and Pock and swan hunter yeah um are you feeling the live experience change in tandem with this change in sound? Well, the change in sound is actually coming through the live experience. Mm. It's, it's kind of that way around. It's important to say that, that this is how I compose through live improvisation. Mm. Um, and by recording the uh the sounds to a stereo track that's it it's not through multi-tracking and overdubbing or underdubbing mm -hmm. um it's recorded as as people hear it so i think i think that came out of originally wanting to be able to present someone when i was releasing something something that bore a resemblance to what I did live. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to present the same. So that was a practical kind of reason. And then I thought, no, I this is how um, I I like the sounds that I create through this process. And it's um, radically different to how I used to approach uh, composition or live improvisation before, whereby we change the rhythms and melodies in different parts of a song to denote different sections of a track. So Mm -hmm. you've got your intro and you've got your whatever, middle eight and your entros and you've got, oh, this bit's an improvisational section or whatever. Now I'm basically using one pattern. Uh, It's essentially one pattern. In my machine, there might be one or two copied patterns that are adjacent, which I can access very quickly, which have got slightly different EQs or filters on certain elements. But essentially the variation of uh, of the track is all is is all textural now yeah yeah you know yes you can i can mute and unmute you can do the basic dub thing where you can take uh sounds out at literally the press of this button which is mimicking the mute switch of a of a mixing desk mimicking the dub process so yeah you can change what people hear through that process, but you can also, I'm doing it through the change of texture. So I could have the same four elements there in the mix over a period of five minutes, but I've radically shifted, changed the textures um, in that time. And um, given the illusion that the track is moving somewhere, you know, that illusion of, um motion but it's you know it has all these other connotations and i have all these other images um in my head at at a particular moment so i'm kind of following a score i suppose of sorts a a mental visual score possibly a scene but that it's it's not contrived it just happens automatically and so you talk about the focus on texture and also about, I mean, it always strikes me that you have a very intimate relationship with your equipment that like you talk about the nuances of, mm. you know, the bit crusher. Yeah. Is there any other equipment you've got your eye on or any kind of specific uh, directions that you want to go in terms of taking your texture by bringing another bit of equipment in? I know you mentioned obviously the reel to reel and uh, how that may um affect your sound but is there anything else as well equipment wise that you're very excited by or looking at at the moment there is but that would be that i've i've already thought ahead and there is something i would like to get but that's kind of moving beyond where i am now it could be a whole new um phase Mm. and i'm kind of kind of reached a place where I think, okay, I need to put out some good documentation of where I've got, which kind of sums up this journey of the last four years, but particularly the last two years. What I should say as well is big influence on this entire sound and this emphasis on 
um, texture is because of my use of this little machine called the Micro Granny. Mm -hmm. It's a single voice sampler. One, you only hear one sound at a time. And I have little noises that I sample. Not unlike some of the noises that I use within the Digitact, but they're just here on their own and they're kind of non-metric. There's no specific beat length and stuff and there's seldom any rhythm. But the main thing about this machine and why it's called a micro granny is it's based upon granular synthesis, which is not synthesis at all. It's sampling and it's digital. And by changing the grain size, the speed at which... So it organizes... We perceive the sample through its granular structure and you can adjust the grain size, the speed at which it travels, the direction it travels in. You can change the start and end point of the samples. And what I do is that I am constantly manipulating those parameters rather than leaving it on one setting, okay? And so for me, para the parameters have become performative. It's the same principle as what I'm doing with these effects. You know, mm -hmm. you, get, you get a distortion pedal or a filter, you apply it to a sound, and then you kind of leave it there, and you think, all right, that's the sound I want. And that's very much a production attitude. Yeah. Okay? But what I'm doing in the, my main set is I'm constantly changing these on the fly and so the parameters have become a means of that they become performative so if you think about dub the same principle applies there in that rather than leaving a certain delay on a sound like a vocal and leaving it fixed and then moving on to your looking at the next sound the, the dub delay the delay in dub, brother, is performative. All right, it's the actual what is of interest, what has become of interest to the audience is the the, the movement of that echo. Mm. It, it's motion through time, um, rather than a particular reverb or delay giving a doubler or whatever effect or a certain ambience you have those as well but it's the idea that something is applied to a sound it echoes away the echo speeds up or slows down it becomes distorted it has certain artifacts all of those so the effect has become performative so i've simply applied that principle to distortions to filters and then when they're all happening simultaneously, because my hands are moving around like an octopus, yes, you get yeah. you get this interaction. You get this. You get all kinds of dissonance. You get um, the almost like um, sounds are fighting for space, and the, and the, and the bass. Whenever the bass elements come in, the other sounds kind of get sucked out. And when the bass disappear, they kind of rush back in again. And so I'm playing around with all of that. 
and um, it's supposed to have some kind of meaning. It, it's not. It's not for me. It's not academic. It's not an academic exercise. It takes upon. I don't. I don't know what the words are. Psychosonic. Uh, I don't know. Uh -huh. Maybe I'm overthinking this. It's no different to where a soundtrack in a film is trying to amplify the emotions of that particular scene. That's it. Simple as that. So this podcast comes out mid-January. Uh, there are some live dates that you've got coming in the weeks after that, So, uh, which I'll mention here. So Cafe Otto, 24th of January. Um, that's a night by Five Gate Temple. And then uh, Electric Spring Festival, University of Huddersfield in February on the 17th. So... Uh, yeah, I'll include links in the show notes so people can go check it out. And uh, seeing you live is a wonderful thing. So I do implore people to go and see those if you're around and able. Um, okay, Onirutha, let's go to your important albums now. So one question I'd like to ask at this point is about how you thought about the word important when picking your list. So was there a way that you understood the word important to come up with the list that you did? It's more the case that I had these three particular albums that have been very significant over the last, well, one of them for nearly 20 years. And so I didn't have any difficulty in thinking of which three albums um, I was going to choose. Huh. So that's why they were important. They were in, <laughs> it was that kind of way around, you know. Um, it kind of makes sense. If something's important to you, and that's what differentiates those things from something else, then you won't have any difficulty in naming them. And um, <laughs> these three, um, in different ways, impacted upon my current practice as Dhongshu. Okay, great. You know, you're the inverse to a lot of people on this podcast who uh, come on and then um, tell me that I've caused them great grief for uh, giving the task of whittling down to three records because, um, yeah, I think it's quite, uh, quite a tricky ask for some people, but that's amazing. Really? You've kind of gone, yeah. It sounds like it's well, for, for me, you. it's like I've got I've got um, you know a ton of favorite albums, but you've specifically used the word important, and that relates to you know in in my case these have inspired my current practice and therefore uh, and given rise to certain elements or principles within my current practice. Therefore, they are important. Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise we could talk about, you know, Diana Ross and the Supremes and Marvin Gaye. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah, for sure. You know, but though they haven't inspired this current practice. Let's go for the first record then. So which one do you want to go for first? It's got to be, um, I was going to say... <laughs> Dark Magus, I almost said Mark Dagus, but I've, I've never done that ever in my life. And Dark Magus. Nice. Yeah. Okay. By Miles Davis. By Miles Davis, yep. Yeah. So give me a little introduction then 
on you, Rutter, as to why this one's important to you? Well, um, I first heard this album when it was being played on the tour bus, like, practically 20 years ago, on the tour bus of the band that I was in, and I said, who the fuck is that? <laughs> and and uh, the DJ in the band said, oh, that's Miles Davis. And I said, no fucking way. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't believe it because it was a sound that one who wasn't necessarily, or anybody who isn't necessarily a fan or knows much about Miles Davis would associate with uh, his output. Hmm. So basically, Dark Magus was the live stuff that Miles was doing with, uh, I think, seven, eight-piece, largely electric band Mm. um, in the early to mid-70s, post-Bitches Brew, and with a lot of the musicians having come from out of the world of rock and funk, you Mm. know, which very much differentiates what was happening at the time of Bitches Brew, which was still, even though Bitches Brew had entered the electric era, it was still with um, musicians rooted in jazz. And by the time you got to Dark Magus, the music had just become very raw, rough, uh, funky, more backbeat orientated. And... The jazz element, I suppose, aside from Miles's trumpet, was pretty much it would be the the saxophone players, like people like Dave Lieberman. And so, Dark Magus blew me away because initially because of its relentless energy, its persistent to use a a hard return type word, <laughs> persistent energy. Yeah. And and it's repetition. Okay. Yeah. So that's what got me. That's what drew me in. And and the kind of disbelief that someone who had started out at that point when he did that several decades before and had gone and had led all these changes through the history of jazz and he's making this music. I just couldn't believe it. And so there came a point whereby I was listening to this album at least once a day, if not twice a day, for a good, for the first 10 years at least. And not so much now, but I realised at a certain point when I listened back and analysed that something I got out of this sound was what I called the dirt aesthetic, and that applies directly to Dongshu whereby there is a certain uh, muddying of the textures, which isn't necessarily intended by either Miles Davies or his musicians, but it's, it's part of the, the translation from the live to the recording that is mm. taken on a lot of dirt. And part of this will possibly because B possibly because the live um, engineers didn't know what the fuck was going on. <laughs> yeah. 
that you know they did not expect this barrage of noise what they interpreted as noise to be coming off the stage the more you get used to dark magus the more you and i've listened to it you know several i don't know probably thousands of times now or at least hundreds of times everything gets more discernible the more you listen to it and you always hear little new little nuances you you hear the beats and rhythms more clearly you hear the bass lines more clearly i always heard the bass lines anyway as i'm a a bass player and even yeah. though the sound is quite murky and muddy at times i i hear the beeline in my head i hear the melody of it and what you call it henderson the bass player he complained about the quality of the the recording of his bass on that particular album and it is in places quite murky mm. and it's not it's nothing to do with his playing his his playing is is fantastic again as a bass player i listened to what he was doing and he had a lot of space in his lines a lot of short kind of melodies so in 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 some respects it's quite a dub attitude right. which is about melody and quickly resolving melodies melodies that last only a, a bar or two short motifs all right and a lot of space around them syncopation you know so as a bass player that inspired me but i was just talking about the overall sound of this album a lot of it as well to do with the energy coming off these eight musicians it's just this wild energy and this um dirty distorted sound so that's what i call the dirt aesthetic and i've kind of applied it to tongshaw but then amplified it literally so i've amplified the idea and i've done it very literally mm-hmm. to to the point of disrupting the original motifs so what what happens if you take that notion to its logical conclusion that's kind of what's going on there mm-hmm. so that that's that's why dark magus has an impact on what i'm doing now it also had an intermediate impact on the project that i did from like 2006 to 2016 which i called dub noise which was basically bass lines juxtaposed with distorted indian and arabic percussion Hmm. but going through distortion and um as it happens the michael henderson the bass player of of miles's dark magus era band he happened to hear one of my tracks on myspace and sent me a little note no way yeah <laughs> i screen <laughs> i screenshot it um it's just one line saying hey man digging your stuff something like that <laughs> and i kind of went into fan mode and wrote something back and uh, never heard from him again but (laughs) (laughs) he he just wanted to he 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 got it he got my bass lines and he he probably got these textures i it's this was my this it's my first go at distorting rhythmic motifs and 
and I did it with the percussion, mm. with with tablas and Arabic dabruka samples, uh, because they give off harmonics of certain. You know, they have a lot of harmonics in that percussion. What to, what I perceived as rhythmic melodies, and then you put that through distortion, my rat distortion pedal, and it throws off all of these harmonics. And then, then you know exactly what the beeline's going to be. It, the, the music has written itself, and so he he must have heard one of those tracks, and I was just blown away. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So you sounded like you were kind of semi-familiar with Miles before Dark Magus. I mean, what was your exposure to Miles before hearing this record? Right, so that would have been around like 2002, three, and I will have heard Miles for the first time back in the early to mid-80s, so 20 years before that, because of people whom I shared a house with as a student uh, having certain records, and I think there was things like On the Corner, which right, slight right on the corner is the actually the missing link between Bitches Brew and Dark Magus era. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's that tra- it's a transition, and it's a, a lot of the same music. It's got musicians from both of those eras. Mm-hmm. And you know, my, uh, Michael Henderson's on there. But anyway, that's that's when I first heard Miles, and it was just another album from the the many other things that I was listening to at the time from from the worlds of jazz and electronica and punk and so it didn't have any particular significance to me if anything uh album like on the corner when I got into sampling it would annoy me a heck of a lot because all the motifs all the are out of time with each other (laughs) all right because of stuff has been edited from different parts of the take and juxtaposed together. So you, you hear the the tabla and the congas and the bass line and the rhythm start to, to veer out. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, every so often, because this is what Tio Macero was doing, um, the producer, cutting and splicing. That's how, on you know, on the corners, another story it's predating composition through basically through looping and sampling predating yeah. hip-hop it's predating any music that is cut and paste yeah you know that's that's a whole other story so i heard that but it didn't it um mean a great deal to me and then i did actually see miles at um wembley conference center no way yeah, in '85. So again, I didn't, I didn't clock that I was seeing something awesome right. at that moment in time. Now, looking back, I can see that '80s was was after he'd after five years hiatus where he did nothing. Okay, he'd exhausted himself with the Dark Magus period. Mm. He took five years off and went into very 
dark place and seclusion and whatever and then he was pulled out of that in like 1981 and slowly started again but it was a whole new era a whole new decade you know and a lot of people thought oh right he's sold out now now looking back at that moment i hear that he he's basically continuing his exploration and he never ever stopped yeah for sure you know and except it sounds a bit friendlier you know <laughs> or you got these big the 80s is all about these big synth sounds and also electric drums and stuff and and also the the emergence of slap bass and things you know things i weren't necessarily into at one point and so i uh, look and then miles covering a lot of pop tunes yeah but I listen to it all now, and I love it. I, you know, I'm not. I'm not just fixated this inverse snobbery, and just fixated on this period of Dark Magus, which a lot of Miles fans hate, or I've heard. You know, the people who are yeah. into Kind of Blue. For me, I see a continuous line from Kind of Kind of Blue right through to his last album, which was a, a hip hop album. Or what he thought was hip hop, his interpretation, and it's somebody who's basically you. You isolate the mic, um, the the trumpet mic, the trumpet channel, over those four, five, six decades. I, I, I don't know, and you'll essentially hear the same Miles tone. Uh, the playing's slightly different. He gets sparser as time goes on. Yeah. And leaves more and more space. But what he's doing is he, he's shifting the environment. He's reacting to the environment in which... The musical environment in which he's playing. Yeah. Sometimes even political environment. He was completely aware of what was going on in Africa and various liberation national liberation struggles and you know he makes reference like album get up with it calypso frilimo and 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 in and you listen to some of the um interviews he did he, he'd be making reference and for me but personally this is another thing i hear it in in dark magus era music and then you look at the cover and and the group and the the personnel and how they're dressed, <laughs> you know, they all look like Black Panthers, right, right. <laughs> and um, he he's making statements there without necessarily being blatant about it. It's it's all there if you if you listen and and look. Is there anything else you wanted to that you were busting to add about? Dark Magus. Dark, Dark Magus. Dark Magus. Before we um, move on to your next record, anything oh, else you want to add? I, lo I love, right at the end of the album, the audience, you hear the swell of energy from the audience, the applause and them cheering, like they've been through an hour and a well, it's actually more than an hour and a half because yeah, the album's yeah. edited. It must have been like two hours. 
They've been through this exhilarating experience. And you get a lot of people trying to rewrite the history of that time, saying, well, this is the, the period we don't talk about. This is when Miles was doing C and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, his standards dropped and the music didn't swing or anything. No, actually, this music predates a lot of electronic we're not even talking electric we're talking electronic music mm -hmm. which is a based which is based upon repetition repeating motifs um music that's centered around the baseline and the melodic baseline and stuff you know it was way ahead of its time and you can listen to it now and it just still sounds like it hasn't been written yet <laughs> you know it's it's incredible mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. anyway that's it for the moment Anirutha, let's go to your second important album. Which one do you want to go for now? I'm going to go for Minimal Nation by Robert Hood. Nice. Yeah, yeah. as with Dark Magus, maybe give me a little introduction as to why this one's important to you. I first heard Minimal Nation, I think, in 2016. I was just completely blown away. So Robert Hood was one of the founder members of Underground Resistance in Detroit. And then at some point he went off to do his own production stuff. And what differentiated his approach to composition and production was that he was extremely minimal. And so this album came out 1996 i think it was mid to late 90s but i heard it a good 20 years after that for the very first time i was drawn to it because i saw online this fantastic graphic the the, the cover mm. it's just such a brilliant cover it's just his head a graphic of his head and minimal nation written in a certain original um typography and i just it's it's that classic principle of you're drawn to an album because of um its cover mm -hmm. so i just gave it a listen on youtube and i was just completely blown away because it was just so sparse and it was very much driven by the kick yeah which was the 909 um so you know you heard mostly kicks and mostly hi-hats so mm -hmm. where else now in contemporary music do you hear mostly kicks and hi-hats in tongsho <laughs> and that's where it came from wow when i heard that i thought wow he's making these tracks okay they're not super long they might be four 
three to five minutes and it was pretty much your kick happening after a couple of minutes a hi-hat might come in you know and then this acid line like either 303 or a modulated synth and it was so sparse and yet it was so compelling there was so much space in there and yet so much propulsion and the way he was doing it if you listen carefully you don't even notice it at first but he's doing it he's subtly changing the eq of a kick so so a kick is in there and then after uh, 30 seconds or something he just he changes um the the bottom end of the eq and suddenly the kick gets heavier so you're already grooving to this sound and (laughs) suddenly it gets heavier (laughs) and and there's so there's two principles going on there it's like if you've got hardly any elements in a piece of music if you've only got two elements in a piece of music and you add another element you've changed that music by 50 percent or it depends where you take the percentage from okay two pieces you add another element so that's 33 percent of the con uh, of the resulting piece of music at that point as uh-huh. it's like wow whereas you know you bring a hi-hat in and there's like 10 things going on you, you're not necessarily gonna hear it or whatever or any other element and so the few things elements you have in a composition when you bring something new in the the bigger potentially its impact mm-hmm and I thought, wow, what an amazing principle. And so that that was one principle. And the, the thing about these tracks being led by the kick, the kick defining the composition, the, the frequencies. And it was kind of the antithesis of what I'd been into as a bass player and as a dub bass player and everything being centered around the bass Hmm. and for the first time I thought wow what if I create some music where I didn't even have a bass line because this guy here is making compelling music yeah it it does have bass components but they're not providing the weight you've got the acid bass line or you have another programmed bass motif but it isn't necessarily super heavy the kick is carrying the weight and the propulsion of the track and and to a degree the um our concept of the of the tonality of that track the tuning and that compelled me i thought wow i i should just start doing stuff which just has a kick and a hi-hat. <laughs> and actually, the Digitact at that point, 2016, had not yet come out. I was waiting. There's rumors of it coming out and little mini reviews. And I thought a sampler would enable me to mess around with the, uh, the tonality and the EQing and the weight of a, of a kick and the tuning of it. So... If you go to the initial, the first album by Tongshu, Future Tense, which came out, I don't know, 2018, it's mostly the the bottom end 
is the kicks. So as well as providing that kind of rhythmic propulsion, it's also providing the low-end frequency tonality to the entire piece. All right, so it was there. Um, and then you got the hi-hat punctuation. But of course, the, the massive difference, I took that principle from Robert Hood and I put my own thing on it. And, you know, my kicks and hats, as I've said, are very syncopated and 4-4. Four, four. I've never... I've never really done 4-4, played 4-4, was into 4-4, except when I've listened to Underground Resistance and Robert Hood. Somehow they make 4-4 very, very funky. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how. It's, it's, it's what you surround the four kicks on the floor with, I guess. The swing that's in the hats, the ambience that surrounds the hats. I know how you can do that. I, I I can put a delay on a hat and change the syncopation of the hats because it almost sounds like those are played. The delayed hats almost sound like these are played as well, but they're not. Mm. They're the echo of the original. So there's all these little tricks. So it was a, that's why minimal nation is important to me because it compelled me to take a big jump as somebody who had been known as a bass player around Europe as a dub bass player. And, um, you know, that was my identity to, to then think, Oh, I'm going to make some music that hasn't even got <laughs> for, 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 forget me playing the bass on a, with a bass guitar, I haven't hasn't even got programmed bass line melody in it, and um, just using the kicks and the implied tonality, or what I call the implied bass line, even because by surrounding certain notes in the samples, or each sample having their own kind of notes and stuff, or um, pitch. You can imply a melody, a baseline melody in your head or in the hopefully in the head of the in the mind of the listener. Yeah. So I call that implied bass. But you attach the, the bottom end of the kick to that implied melody and it becomes an implied bass. So that was in the first Tongsho um period, first couple of years of Tongsho. It was just kick orientated. And, you know, probably pissed off a whole heap of dubheads <laughs> thinking, what's this guy doing? What's our, this guy we know as a bass player, what's he, what is he doing? But th this is all thanks to Robert Hood wow. and Minimal Nation. And then I went on to listen to his other stuff and he, it was, nothing was as minimal as that again, but still more minimal than any other stuff that I've heard coming out of um, Detroit. I've heard you say, I think maybe this was your interview for Outlands in 2022, mm -hmm. Dambia mm -hmm. Singh Bra. You talked about the fact that, you you mentioned this record actually. Okay. I think it was in there that you said, you know, if you've got a few sounds, yeah. those sounds have got to be amazing. So if you are yeah. bringing oh, in yeah. a hi-hat after two yeah. minutes, yeah. it's got to be a good hi-hat. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
how how long do you spend are you someone who spends a lot of time fine-tuning the individual sounds within your palette given that you're not working with loads um yeah do you spend a lot of time on the individual sound yeah i forgot to mention that that's another very super important principle of minimalism that they've got to be absolutely the best possible sounds they are completely exposed there mm. so yes i do so it's not like oh because someone's only someone's a minimalist they're only using free sounds so it doesn't necessarily equate that they're only they're going to spend less time than if they were using 20 sounds you mm -hmm. have to you have to tune um those sounds and make them the best that they could possibly be but over time your ability to arrive at that point improves and you you can you get uh, better at arriving at a sound much quicker mm. you know or you reuse the same sound so in all of Tongsha I've only got two kicks three kicks that I use and I audition each one in relation to the other sounds that I'm going to put it with to find which is the best kick and then you manipulate things like um the filter on it digitac's got fantastic very powerful expressive filters hmm. and you can radically change each sound using this for for a kick um a low pass and and then using the attack you can have either an, an attack if you want the kick to cut through or if you just want it to be super heavy, you take off the attack mm -hmm. and it becomes this, it dulls the, the front end and then you ampli you turn it up a bit and it becomes this heavy bass sound. So it's what role you want the sound to play in that in the context of that particular track, which is all in relation to the the tempo and the tempo um, determines what kind of space what kind of pro propulsion that track has yeah so to answer mm. your question yes i do spend a little while but <laughs> i'm not i'm not super obsessive and the other thing is is that these parameters and adjustments change over time um, because I do adjust these elements that I mentioned, like the attack on a kick, for instance, according to the environment that I'm playing in, mm. um, because I'm hearing mo monitoring is super important to somebody who's improvising to be able to hear the changes that I'm making with my fingers and when I hear the sound and it doesn't sound great to me, I don't care in, in that gig if I change something. Mm -hmm. So I've often changed thinking, oh, that kick is not cutting through on this system. So I'll, I'll give, I'll take the attack back to, to zero. So you hear that front end little click or that percussive element of the kick. 
or in another place i'm thinking oh it could we need it to sound a bit more bassy or dubbier in here so i will take that click off and stuff or i will change the hats often there's a lot of places the eqing is so top heavy that i'm literally dragging hats down in terms of level and some of my motifs the kind of alien um synth sounds and then the other thing you do is you mess around with the high pass filter mm -hmm. until everything is sitting in that particular environment and then sometimes i think that's how i want it to sound in any environment and and so you you, you just re-save uh-huh and that's how a track evolves and over time and it's all evolution through live performance the final one on this well we'll see actually final one on this robert hood record do you have a favorite track the funny thing about this is that i don't really remember the names so there's one that has um the acid line yeah this is the one because that line's coming in yeah that motif is amazing which one is that which track it's museum so it's track two ah cool nice yeah, he's opening up that filter. Right. Incredible. Uh, <laughs> just so incredible. And that inspired me to think, yeah, I'm going to... I wanted to be, by, by 2016, having done dub noise for 10 years, I wanted to be super minimal in terms of what was going into my compositions, how many elements in terms of how much gear I used, in every way possible. We've got one more important record, Aniruta. Uh, tell me the name of it, and then again a little bit about why this one's important to you too. Right, so the album is Landlocked, which is by the band Hallucinator. And Hallucinator was Trevor Mattison, Anna Piva, and Eddie George. Now, I was handed a CDR copy of this in the early 2000s, I think about 2009, by Trevor Mattison, who is one half of Dub Morphology, hmm. a lot alongside Gary Stewart. So that Dub Morphology is kind of an arts, audiovisual arts research installation composition all kind of things project and i've often collaborated with them or been a kind of the mystery third member auxiliary member in various um, live projects or installations that they've done and 2009 we'd just done something with dub morphology 
at Tate Modern in the Tanks. Oh, cool. Which was kind of an ongoing live laboratory. But anyway, he handed me Hallucinator and the album's called Landlocked. And that was made in 1999. So Mm -hmm. a good 10 years previously. And I'd known Trevor, who'd been introduced to me by Gary. I'd known him for a good possibly 15 years at that point or or no longer I can't remember and I'd never known about this project and again I listened to it and I was like wow blown away again and again just like Dark Magus when I love something and and Minimal Nation I will listen incessantly to something I've got I've got my little my favorite listening space is uh an iPod classic, uh, which, <laughs> oh, wow. which, which is still working. It's had one repair, but I've had it for about 12 years. It's still going. Nice. I, sh- I shouldn't say things like that. It might stop <laughs> working. But it's my favourite listening environment, that and a pair of headphones, and you walk around London with a little camera. It's, you know, listening to whatever. But mm. anyway, I listened to Landlock, landlocked loads and why i think it's important and was a real inspiration for dongsho is that it exposed to me um a place that is midway between dub culture and sound art that's the vibe i got so it makes a lot of obvious references to dub and bass culture, particularly a track like Black Angel. That's probably my favourite and track. And then it's got other tracks that have no beats in it, no bass component necessarily. And I'm hearing and listening to all of that for the very first time. I never got into this whole ambient thing when it came out, ambient techno. It was too light for me, and it was too whatever. But this mm-hmm. had a certain darkness about it, which is, of course, informed by, you know, the, the, the cultural background of the people who, who made the music. Mm. So it's indicating to me that there's a sound art. Yeah, okay, Anna Piveri's Italian heritage. But it's kind of indicating to me... Um, that you can approach experimental music and sound art from a non-white perspective. And that was, for me, the important thing. Aside from the music itself being what I consider to be and still consider to be very beautiful. Yeah. And again, in common with the Dark Magus and Minimal Nation, it's very much about repetition and minimalism and space so those aesthetic qualities they're all so i guess that's the music i like to listen to but it it had that but it was that it was going into an area that i'd never sat down and listened to which is kind of what i do nowadays and it's commonplace for me and it's what I listen to mainly now is various 
forms of what you can loosely call experimental music hyphen sound art. Um, and that wasn't part of, that had never been part of my listening um, practice or experience. So Landlock is important because it drew me into this world via the conduit of bass culture. And again, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with Tongsho. Um, it's definitely infiltrating the world of experimental sound, but without relinquishing 30 years experience within bass culture. Mm. And I, I don't think I will ever relinquish that. I will never relinquish those frequencies, um, nor that kind of propulsion, and nor the associations with the cultures that those sounds emanate from. Mm -hmm. And so Landlock kind of gave me um, a way into this particular world, that interface. So that, that's why I say now on various biogs, oh yeah, Tong Shaw works at the interface of bass culture and experimental sound. So that's what I mean. But that mm. came from listening to Landlocked. And I told I told Trevor this, and eventually I got to meet Eddie George at, at some event, a dub morphology we were playing at. It's quite an important event, actually. It's where it was the first time Eddie George and Anna, Anna Piva were kind of publicly in the same place as Trevor again after wow. Tre Trevor Matterson. And everybody just got on fine, and we all sat on the same panel presenting different sounds and testimonies in relation to our interpretations of, of dub. You know, and I, again, I was kind of in fanboy mode with with <laughs> with, with Eddie, with, not with Trevor because I know Trevor in the, for a while, but with um, Eddie George and uh, Anna Piva meeting them for the first time and saying, you know, your your sound. I've been listening to you constantly for five years, and uh, it's inspiring what was a fledgling Tongsho sound back then when, when we did that it was probably 2017. And, um, yeah, as you say, I mean, you've been connected to Trevor for a long while. I mean, one thing that springs to mind as I'm talking to you is that you did, I think was this quite recently, you did a hmm. sonic intervention that responded yes. to an exhibition yeah. of his from signal to decay. So that's it. Uh, yeah. CCA. Yeah, for sure. So, um, tell me a bit about that. Like, uh, what was your involvement in it? And, um, yeah. How did that pan out? Well, that come about because obviously Trevor did that particular exhibition, which was for the first time, uh, showcasing his other skills other than as a, sound artist and a sound designer so it had his uh, visual works which were both 2d and 3d and even some of his work as um, a film person mm. 
but everything was in relation to a score that he had written that was being piped throughout the gallery and it would play on loop. It was like a two-hour loop or something. And that was the sonic backdrop to the rest of the exhibition. And the idea concocted by CCA and Trevor was that a number of different artists would reinterpret or interpret this work in whatever way they felt they wanted to and inspired by whatever element. So we had Gary did it. Um, Ayn Bailey did one, who's another fairly well-known art, sound artist, a cello, cello player, and uh, I've forgotten her name, which is really bad. But is it Kate, Kate Short, it says listed on Short, the yeah. site. Yeah, yeah, great, great cellist. Um, but anyway, m- the way I interpreted what Trevor was doing was I asked for the components... Uh, stems of the soundtrack. So there's like eight stems of each an hour long or whatever. And I just went in and I extracted various samples and, and manipulated them in Ableton. And then I re-rendered and fed them into my two samplers, my Digitact, where they would be sequenced rhythmically and then into my micro granny where it would be more about as i said a non-metric sound and texture and then i did um, a performance and we actually did this twice like uh, two different occasions in the gallery uh, with an audience significant for me was the first time that i changed the balance between metric and non-metric in my set. I must have played about an hour, and of that, there might there might have been 20 minutes of rhythmic-based oh, wow. stuff, and the rest of it was what I call caustic ambience. So beatless, non-metric-orientated uh, sounds with Trevor's based upon Trevor's motifs or what I felt were the one, the motifs that interested me uh, the most, but reinterpreted in a, in a Tongsho kind of a way. Then that exhibition coincided with Trevor bringing out an album on vinyl. And then after what we did, the interventions, where recordings were taken of each other's performance. Yeah, so a new album has come out, which includes um, passages of our um, intervention, as it was called. And he, he then took the show, the exhibition, to Brussels, and there's talk of it possibly happening in Oslo. Think people in Oslo are interested, and they're interested in having the whole, all of us doing our interventions as well. So oh, we'll wicked. see. That would be amazing if that happened, but you know, when if it happens, it happens. It would, yeah, it would be amazing. Is there any last 
things you want to say on Landlocked and Hallucinator? Awesome tracks here, you know, Gold Coast. Again, you know, as a reference to slave trade. It's mm. also even very more specific. It almost points at the royal family's complicity in it. Mm-hmm. The royal Africa Company, which was initiated around the time of Charles II, gave rise to the term of money called Guinea. And you you listen to the track and you can make these the title titles of tracks of instrumental tracks are important because they're signposts or triggers of thoughts or triggers of images. Mm-hmm. And so with that knowledge of Gold Coast and that little bit of knowledge there, you could listen to this track and imagine certain things or then feel okay i want to go and do my own research and find out a little bit more Mm -hmm. about what was going on there we've got one more question right and you've partly answered this i like to ask about how music listening features in your life so as part of that you know how you like to listen to music you've mentioned the ipod classic which Mm. i hope has a long life from this point as well continues to um how do you tend to bring music into your life in terms of formats and where you buy music? Um, yeah, what does that look like? Formats, uh, as of the last decade or so, and because of uh, the um, iPod, is pretty much digital. That's how I'm listening. Mm-hmm. And that's how I purchase. And primarily from Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. I've had to slow down that because I realized what little money I was making from Bandcamp. It would just sit there in the PayPal account and then go out again buying other um, artists off Bandcamp, which is great. It's a little, I call it the internal economy of musicians and Uh a kind of area of mutual support. Because I don't do, I don't buy out of charity. I buy because I think that this is a really great piece of music. This is a great album. Mm. So, and also the other element to my listening is that, as well as it being aesthetic, it's educational to me. So there might be certain things that are of interest to me in my practice as Tongshu or as an electronic artist that I could learn from mm-hmm. as well as it but it's it's always because it's fantastic music so that's you know 
it's mostly um uh, digital then um i still have a stash of cds mm-hmm. and um i haven't got a space set up to listen to cds yet so unfortunately most of my listening is through the ipod or through the computer yeah um just plug that into my powered monitors and listen that way i do have a, a tiny but growing collection of vinyls but again i'm not close to setting it up i've recently just been allocated the space to work in by uh, the people i worked with 25 years ago as an educator and oh they've, wow they've offered me a little room they're having a rejuggle tiny little space but for me it's perfect I, i i would get you know my gear's minimal anyway yeah uh, but i think i could also accommodate three or four people besides myself and run workshops in there oh wow so if there's enough space on the on the surface area there i may think about getting um a turntable in there i do have a cd player and i do have uh, a cassette deck i've uh, oh yeah that's that's the other format uh-huh. because because cassettes are big on the electronic scene i have a little growing collection of cassettes but of course i haven't i haven't listened to them yeah <laughs> right know, you, yeah. you simultaneously get the digital equivalent stick it in the ipod and the cassettes they're looking very nice and a multitude of colors and they they feel great and they look great but i haven't played them yet uh-huh. so but i'm looking forward to that as well so i think it's more likely that i'll get a cassette player rigged up in this studio great um well this has been awesome i've had so much insight into your music uh these three records have been awesome to dig into over the past week so um yeah onirota i'm proper grateful thank you very much for coming on and talking about all this music yeah thank you for inviting me ace and to everyone listening i'll see you next time goodbye bye